This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, first we start with the land acknowledgement. I bring you greetings from the lands of the um, Chickasaw Nation. And I greet those of you who are within, in the land of the Onlone people. Um, we greet the ancestors and the elders past and present of all of the indigenous nations on whose land we occupy. Uh, we acknowledge that all of us inhabit the lands of the indigenous nations of this, of this continent. And we acknowledge the truth of the violence that's been perpetuated against them. And again, I invite you, type in to give honor to the nations whose land you currently occupy or the land that you were born on, um, that you occupied at your birth. I was born on the land of the Karakawa Nation. I also want to honor the memory of our ancestors who were terrorized during the Mafa, those who survived and those who did not. The Mafa refers to the African Holocaust. And I stand in solidarity with our Asian American brothers and sisters and our Asian American elders who have been terrorized since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic because of the racist rhetoric that has surrounded an infectious organism, calling it the China virus or the con flu, using racist terminology to refer to an infectious organism. Um, and so many, many reports, thousands of reports, we almost have 4,000 reports now of terrorism against Asian Americans, especially the elders. Um, and we also are give uh, honor and tribute to the memories of the lives of the women who were killed in Atlanta, who were murdered for no other reason than being Asian American. Today we're going to, oh, here are my disclosures, y'all. So I am an expert consultant now for understood.org. I will not be discussing any off-label use of any products. I only talk about evidence-based interventions. And I identify as a Black or African-American cisgender woman. I experience gendered racism, which is the intersectionality of racism and sexism. And I'm a member of the lowest caste, racial caste of the U.S. society. And all of these experiences shape how I approach uh, this topic of autism and ADHD. I'm going to do my best to do this in 30 minutes. I talked to my boss and said, I cannot believe I only have 30 minutes to talk about ADHD and autism. So he gave me the subtitle, the Reader's Digest approach. So I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of ADHD and um, autism. So we in 30 minutes, so we're going to talk about epidemiology for both diagnoses. We're going to talk about the comorbid ADHD and autism. And I appreciate the physician who just presented about the comorbid ADHD and Down syndrome. And then we're going to talk about some evidence-based interventions. So let's start with ADHD. Worldwide, the prevalence of ADHD is 5%. In the United States, among our kids, it's about 10%. We know that boys are diagnosed with ADHD at three times the rate of girls. And economically, ADHD has poses a really large economic burden to the United States, where we spend over $40 billion a year in uh, education, medical care, and other expenditures related to children, adolescents, and adults who have ADHD. Isn't that remarkable? Um, in this uh, study that was published in Pediatrics, looking at the, a national survey of, of individuals who have special health care needs, they asked parents, there were 88,000 children included in this survey between the ages of three and 13, has a doctor or healthcare professional ever told you that your child had 
you know, one of, of nine different diagnostic categories, ADHD, cerebral palsy, autism, et cetera. And what they found is the prevalence of uh, developmental disabilities has actually increased since 1997 when they began to really systematically include this data. So we have a much higher uh, percentage of children, almost 20% of children are reported by their parents to have been di diagnosed with some type of developmental disability. Now, when you look in that same data set, we can compare children across uh, racial categories. Uh, we have the black kids, we have the Latinx kids, we have the white kids, and this last category are considered other. So these are the children that included um, Asian American kids. I think American Indian children were included in the database. Um, and so what they found is that uh, over that overall, uh, about 16 to about 17 percent of kids were diagnosed with a developmental disability. Right. Yet the lowest diagnostic rates were among Hispanics and these children that fall into the other category, uh, which would be Asian American, American Indian individuals. And then looking at ADHD, overall, about 9% of kids in this, in this national sample had been told, parents had been told their kid had ADHD. And that was uh, statistically lower for Hispanic kids, much less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And when it came to autism, about 1.7% of the parents uh, of kids had been given the diagnosis of ADHD. And that was statistically lower for African-American and for Hispanic kids. And what they found overall is that Black kids were much more likely to have been uh, diagnosed with learning disabilities or with stuttering. And Latino kids were much least likely to be diagnosed with uh, any developmental disability. So then we wanted to know, well, it comes to ADHD and learning disabilities, the CDC puts out their, their briefs and they wanted to know, does the prevalence of the diagnosis of ADHD or learning disability vary by racial category? So this is what they found. Um, in their data, they compared in the blue bars, kids ages three to 10, and in the green bars, kids ages 11 to 17. And what they found, of course, that there's a higher prevalence of ADHD among older children, right? Makes sense. As kids get older, they're more likely to have received a diagnosis of ADHD. But what's interesting is African-American kids had statistically significant higher rates of being diagnosed with ADHD in this particular data brief from the CDC uh, based on parent report. Isn't that amazing? Both uh, children ages three to 10 and kids who were 11 to 17. And uh, white children were statistically more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD compared to his, uh, Hispanic kids. Now, what are the diagnostic criteria for ADHD? Well, um, these are kids who, I forgot to start my timer. These are kids who are found to have these basic characteristics, right? They struggle with attention regulation. It isn't that kids with ADHD can't pay attention. Kids with ADHD can't not pay attention. They see, hear, feel, touch, taste, think everything. They're constantly aware of what's happening in their environment, what they are in their thinking. What they have a difficulty with is actually being able to specifically focus on one thing at a time, especially if that task is, is not interesting to the child or it's non-preferred. So it's an issue with attention regulation which comes from the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, the reticular activating system, right? Okay, 
Then you have issues with impulse control, either verbal or physical impulsivity. And then the third area is their activity level. They tend to be more fidgety, more inquieto, more hyperactive and restless compared to their peers. Now, these symptoms have to be present, according to the DSM-5, younger than the age of 12 to prove childhood onset of the symptoms. The uh, age was moved from seven to 12 between the DSM-4 and DSM-5 because um, with the adult literature, there were no criteria to help adult medicine doctors figure out whether or not an adult patient had ADHD because no adult patient is going to remember what they were like before they were seven years old, right? And no one's dragging a mama to the psychiatrist for the diagnosis of ADHD. So they wanted to approve childhood onset. They moved the, the age to, to 12. The other thing is when it comes to kids who are predominantly inattentive, they're not very impulsive, they're not very fidgety and restless, those symptoms really don't become apparent until kids are older, older than nine. So the inattentive symptoms tend to be much more noticeable in kids between the ages of nine and 14. So 12 is the, is the age of onset, younger than 12. The other thing to remember is that the symptoms of ADHD have to occur in more than one setting, right? So you don't just have ADHD at home and you don't just have ADHD at school. This is how your brain is wired. This is something you were likely born with that you inherited from your family, unless you had other risk factors like being premature or having a congenital heart lesion or being exposed to drugs, alcohol, or tobacco prenatally. Most kids with ADHD is actually a family. Uh, it's a, there's a family history of it. It's genetic. So your brain follows you everywhere you go. Now, sometimes your ADHD symptoms might be more pronounced in some areas than it is in other areas, but you have ADHD seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, the, set, the other thing is it has to be that your symptoms, they didn't put this on this picture, but I like this graphic because I think it makes it easier for the audience for us to kind of to digest the diagnostic criteria. Your symptoms have to be more extreme than other boys or girls of your developmental level. That is very important, y'all. That's what I like about the fifth, the DSM-5 criteria versus what has been in the four and DSM-3. I was in medical school under three as DSM-3. They never took developmental levels into consideration. As a developmental pediatrician, I always do. So let's think about this. If you have a nine-year-old child that is cognitively, developmentally, and adaptively at the level of a five-year-old child, and they're behaving like a five-year-old child, that nine-year-old does not have ADHD. That nine-year-old has an intellectual disability, and they're acting like they're a developmental age. That is extremely important for children who have developmental delays. Remember, you got to compare them. If you use a Connors for your uh, ADHD questionnaire, you can actually score based on the kid's chronological age and then score them on developmental age down to age six. Unfortunately, the Connors doesn't go below age six for the uh, Connors ADHD questionnaire. You have to prove that function is being interfered with. And this includes academic functioning in school. Do they have missing assignments? That's a huge factor in our patients who have ADHD. They just forget to turn in their homework because like the dog ate it or it's crumbled in the bottom of their backpack, or it's in the closet under a bunch of junk. So academic functioning is impaired. Social functioning is impaired. They might be the life of the party and the class clown and kids like them, so they make friends, but they struggle to keep friends. And the last thing is how they function at home. Like, is there parent-child conflict? Is there sibling conflict? Does that child get on people's nerves? 
They don't mean to, but you got to tell them the same thing over and over again. So you've got to have an, an interfering and functioning. And then it can't be explained by another health condition. Y'all, this is really important too. This is criterion E. So I have an adage that says, all that bounces is not ADHD. All that flaps is not autism. It's okay to be quirky. You've got to recognize when there's something else that can explain this kid's inattention, this kid's hyperactivity, this kid's impulsivity, such as trauma, right? Adverse childhood experiences, such as negative social determinants of health, like severe poverty, or such as racial trauma and racial stress. Or what if this child has a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? If your brain has been reorganized by alcohol, you are going to be inattentive, impulsive, and have difficulty with overall self-regulation and activity levels. So you got to think about what else could potentially explain these ADHD symptoms. Recent stressors like sex abuse, right? Being bullied at school. Those are all things we need to be taking into consideration and in making the diagnosis. Okay. Comorbidities are extremely common in individuals who have ADHD. It is very hard to find a person with ADHD who only has ADHD. The vast majority, like 70% or more, have a comorbidity. Language disorders and learning disorders are the most common. Anxiety disorders are very prevalent. And I tend to see, if there's a family history of anxiety, I tend to see it begin to emerge in the preschool years. Um, but definitely by age eight or nine, you will know that a kid with ADHD has anxiety. And by adolescence, half of our kids have uh, depressive disorders. And then oppositional defiant disorder is very common in boys, like half of boys statistically have uh, oppositional defiant disorder who have ADHD, but other kids don't necessarily have ODD, but they're just defiant kids. Their kids with ADHD are just much more likely to challenge you and to argue with you. Um, and things like bedwetting are really common because I think of bedwetting as a physiologic immaturity issue. And we know that folks who have ADHD are not only physiologically immature, they are socially and emotionally immature and and they are uh, they're neurologically immature. So of course they're going to wet the bed longer because their whole body, all of their organs are just immature. And if you look at the natural history of ADHD, outcomes are not positive, y'all. We see higher rates of school failure, grade repetition and school dropout, they are five times, <coughs> excuse me, please, more likely to engage in substance use and abuse compared to their same age peers. Unfortunately, they have low early contact with the criminal legal system compared to their peers. Adults and adolescents who have ADHD have higher rates of un and underemployment. And adolescents with ADHD are four times more likely to get into serious motor vehicle accidents compared to their same age peers that don't have ADHD. And there's early sexual activity. Uh, there's a higher rate of using unprotected sex, having multiple one night stands and a higher risk of sexual, um, sexually transmitted infections and uh, unexpected pregnancies among adolescents who have ADHD. Among adults with ADHD, in addition to have unemployment and underemployment, there are higher adult rates, uh, divorce rates among adults who have ADHD. Um, adults with ADHD report having fewer intimate friends. They, uh, they um, read less for pleasure and they have lower quality of life. Uh, when parents ask me about side effects of medication, I just wanna throw this while we're walking down this street and they're worried about giving their child with ADHD medicines rather than just letting the child with ADHD be themselves. I take a piece of paper, I draw a line down the middle. On the left side, I put side effects of medicines. 
And on the right side, I put side effects of ADHD. The natural history of ADHD is the side effects of ADHD. After we describe the side effects of medicines, which are short-term and fully reversible, as opposed to the side effects of ADHD, which can be lifelong and many of them are irreversible. I have parents ask, you know, which side effects would you rather manage? Now let's get into autism. So according to the latest data from the uh, CDC, they used, um, they used school records and medical records from 11 sites across the United States. So in 2016, the latest findings were that the prevalence of ADHD in the, in the United States is one in 64 kids. I'm not real convinced that this number is accurate. And I'm gonna tell you why. Not that I'm big and bad and I'm big and better than the researchers at the CDC, that's not it. But they use school records and, and they did not necessarily verify the school records with medical records. Um, and I actually have a lot of patients who meet eligibility for special education services under the category of, of autism, but they really don't have autism, right? So I'm not quite sure how to, to take the number, but this is the number we go by, okay? Now, when you're looking at prevalence of autism among, um, among uh, Black versus Hispanic versus white children, we know, just like we talked about yesterday, that Black and Latino kids are much later in being diagnosed with developmental disabilities, including ADHD and autism traditionally. Um, however, as you can see, the prevalence rates, the differences between Blacks and whites and Blacks and Hispanics has actually gotten better over the past five or more years. So at one point, there was a huge discrepancy between white and Black kids, white and Latino kids being diagnosed with autism. But now the 2014 data, which is the latest data that I that I have, um, shows that the, the gap between black and white kids and Hispanic and white kids is actually narrowed quite a bit. And that's good. Right. So that means that pediatricians, uh, providers are being much more likely and maybe even schools are being more equitable in evaluating kids for the diagnosis. OK. Um, and then I think this is showing the same data but in a different way. I don't want to run out of time. So let's talk about disparities in screening and referral. So like we talked about yesterday, there's this one study that I thought was really interesting where they followed um, in a particular resident clinic and they saw almost a thousand kids between the ages of 17 months and 34 months in primary care. And what they found is that there was no racial differences or disparities in um, MCHAT completion rates among the parents. Um, although their overall completion rates were really low, if you go and read this study, which, you know, it's kind of made me sad, right? So they're giving out the MCHAT to everybody, but only like 54% finished it. And of those who finished the MCHAT, there was no racial differences between Black, Hispanic, and white patients. But what was very interesting is that Hispanic children had a statistically higher positive screening rate on the MCHAT R as composed to non-Hispanic kids. And I don't know why that is. And then when kids screen positive on the MCHAT, the physicians in this particular study had overall low referral rates for the patients, but at least they were, there was no statistical difference between who they referred for early intervention and for other evaluations. They just weren't referring many of the kids overall, which is not good. Uh, when you look at the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder, you have criteria A and B, okay? Those are the main two we look at. Now, 
people tend to go back to the DSM-4 where we have these splitters. I call, when it comes to the, the land of the DSM, you can have lumpers and you can have splitters, okay? Under the DSM-4, we have the splitters. So we have pervasive developmental disorders and then we have boom, 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 like all these different diagnoses under pervasive de developmental disorders. Now we have the lumpers for DSM-5, which I think makes things a lot easier, cleaner and neater because clinicians were not using DSM-4 criteria appropriately. So now everybody has an autism spectrum disorder. The way you meet criteria is by having three symptoms of persistently poor social communication skills and two symptoms of restricted repetitive behaviors, interests, and activities. In addition to that, the symptoms have to be present in early childhood. Remember, autism is something you're born with. Studies suggest that the fetal brain already begins to show changes, neurological, micro neurological changes um, before the, the baby is even born. So autism is present um, in the fetal brain. It has a cause significant impairment on the overall functioning and it's not explained by another diagnosis. So this goes back to my adage, all that bounces is not ADHD, all that flaps is not autism, it's okay to be quirky. Just as the previous doctor said, a lot of children who have developmental disabilities have stereotypies, they can be a little socially awkward, they can be a little off, but that doesn't mean, you know, you can be odd and quirky and different, but that doesn't mean you have autism, okay? So now here are, this is how now we do specifiers for, for autism. You have autism spectrum disorder with or without a language impairment, okay? So these are the kids who have the speech and language delays. With or without an intellectual impairment, so these are the kids with the overall developmental and cognitive delays. Then is it associated with a known genetic or medical condition like fragile X, right? Um, is it associated with another neurodevelopmental disorder, behavioral disorder, and is, is there, is catatonia present? Then you decide the levels of function, the three levels of function. So in your handout, I have these delineated very specifically in a table, and I just decided to give just a simple picture from very well. So level one autism, you give a level for social communication disorders as social communication symptoms, and you give a level for repetitive and restricted behaviors, okay? So a kid could be one level for their social communication skills and a different level for their repetitive behaviors and restricted interests. So uh, level one are the kids that just require some support. So they, you know, they may have some difficulty with social interactions, et cetera. And if a kid is, is uh, level one for both social communication skills and for um, repetitive behaviors, then those are the kids that we used to say had Asperger's syndrome. In other words, they have milder symptoms of autism. Level two children require substantial support. So their social interactions are much more limited. They have very limited, you know, special interests. They have more restricted behaviors and more ritualized behaviors. So this is sort of the moderate range. And then level three are kids that require very substantial report. So when it comes to social communication deficits, they're very severe. So these children may have no verbal language at all. They may only communicate to have their individual needs and wants met, and they don't really engage in social communication. These children may never fully establish joint attention, which is the shared, shared experience between two people. And they may have incredible distress and severe rigidity in their actions overall. So that's how now we delineate um, ADHD, uh, autism spectrum disorders. About half of kids with uh, autism have ADHD worldwide. The prevalence rates vary depending on the country. 
about 30 to 50 percent have intellectual disabilities, 7 to 15 percent have seizure disorders, and kids with autism can develop seizures most likely before the age of three or during adolescence. And psychiatric disorders are very prevalent among individuals who have autism spectrum disorders. So let's talk about autism and ADHD together. So the ADHD symptoms really impede uh, the benefit of treatment if a kid has both ADHD and autism, okay? Now you've got to rule out the intellectual disability, remember that, because 30 to 50% of kids with, with autism have an intellectual disability. So if they're developmentally younger, then that doesn't mean that they have ADHD too, okay? Remember that. Uh, it increases the risk of them having psychiatric disorders, and they just have much more hyperactive and impulsive, very poor safety awareness in kids who have autism and ADHD. They're more likely to be aggressive and their behaviors are harder to manage. And if you treat them with stimulants, they're more likely to have side effects from stimulants. So when you're thinking about treatment, uh, black kids and Latinx kids are actually less likely to receive medication treatment for ADHD, and they're less likely to receive, um, to be treated for shorter durations than white kids are for ADHD. And because of longstanding institutional racism, these communities of colors have so many barriers to receiving good um, treatment for their ADHD symptoms. So this is a treatment triangle for Russell Barkley, and this is what I use in my clinic. So what I say is everybody with ADHD needs the base. You need your behavioral supports and you need your academic interventions. That's, that's baseline. And if the symptoms of ADHD are mild, then that's all that kid really needs. However, for children with moderate to severe ADHD symptoms, where you've got the behavioral supports in place, you've got the educational interventions in place, yet their symptoms are still interfering with their overall functioning, that means that their symptoms are moderate to severe. And these are the kids who need medication to improve their overall focus, their ability to, to concentrate and to, um, to tune out distractions, which is really important for task completion, medications to help that, which stimulants re also reduce their overactivity and help with impulse control because it's the impulse control that gets them in trouble. Um, and then here are some basic parenting strategies for managing ADHD. Like it's really important to give one-step effective instructions, making eye contact, calling that kid's name and um, having them to repeat the instructions. And we have got to praise them when they give effort and when they actually follow instructions more than punishing them when they don't follow our instructions. When it comes to treatment for autism, it's the same thing. Treatment triangle, right? I use treatment triangle for everything. Y'all, You can use treatment triangle for uh, asthma. So you've got to have your educational and your behavioral supports in place. And part of education, I forgot to say this with the previous slide, is parent education. Parents need to become experts in whatever diagnosis their kid has. So for kids who have autism, the symptoms we treat, but we're not treating autism, right? There's no medicine for autism. We're treating the behaviors that can be comorbid with having autism, such as that irritability, aggression, anxiety, uh, mood disorders, self-injury, eloping, insomnia, things that really interfere with how well that family and that child functions. So ADHD and autism are two very common neurodevelopmental disabilities in children domestically and worldwide. They each have their own comorbidities that impair, that impair functioning. Overall, about 50% of kids in the U.S. who have autism also have ADHD, and comprehensive treatment is very important. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.